Welcome to Rebel and Create's Fatherhood Field Notes podcast, where we hear real stories from real men living real lives. I'm your guide, Ned Shout. Fatherhood is not only about being a dad. It incorporates providing and serving a home, loving and serving a spouse, engaging and serving in a community, as well as intentionally serving our kiddos. Fatherhood is an adventure, one full of fun, wild, and definitely messy stories. In this podcast, we will hear stories from real men who have found themselves living the adventure of fatherhood. This was really an incredible conversation. Uh, as you'll hear Brad Davis, one of my great friends, and I talking. Just sitting and talking with him is always fun and intentional and can get deep and serious, but also have just like a lighthearted, enjoy, enjoyable feel. Um, but great guy, very wise. And uh, I do owe him uh, incredible um, amounts of just thankfulness because he's helped me a lot in my career in this life. So having people that serve as mentors to you uh, is very critical. But in this episode of the Fatherhood Field Notes, we talk about him and his life. We talk about losing a parent early and how he had to grow up quickly and what that looked like. We talk about your past not determining your future. And we also talk about codependency. I know you're going to enjoy this conversation with my friend Brad. If you enjoy it, please share it. Please like it. Please write a review and go follow us on Facebook and Instagram so you can be in tune with all that we're doing to show that fatherhood matters. Enjoy this conversation about fatherhood. Okay, it is uh, another great day, and I'm sitting here with one of my favorite people, Brad Davis. What's up? You're just saying that because I'm here. What's up, Ned? <laughs> Maybe, but uh, <laughs> your picture in my phone is Mr. Miyagi because you are have been my insurance sensei. When I need help, I call you, so you really are one of my favorite people. So. Do, I, do I get a commission for that? Is that how much does a sensei uh, that make? That actually... I it's a sensei out of compassion and nonprofit and <laughs> it's, it's your community service. Well, I have a long list of those, <laughs> yeah. but yeah. I'm honored to be your sensei. Ned. I'll pass it down to someone else. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> um, cool. So Brad and I have probably known each other eight, seven, eight years or so. Uh, we're in the same industry. Um, and then, We've been a part of an association for our uh, our industry, Underwriters Association Insurance. Mm-hmm. So with that, we've got to travel a little bit for conferences and always try to room up and hang out. So, so yeah, do you remember one time I forgot dress shoes and you were the only guy that was willing to go with me to the Nordstrom Rack? I remember walking in through Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you convinced me to get brown shoes with a dark suit and I have never done that before. <laughs> and it probably looked awesome. I wear those shoes four days a week at least. <laughs> the same exact shoes from two or three years ago. I remember doing that because I remember I was taking pictures of you <laughs> looking for <laughs> shoes. We're just out shoe shopping together. I got to say, you're probably the only dude that I've ever shoe shopped with. <laughs> so <laughs> I wouldn't make a habit of it, <laughs> yeah. but I'm going to change your name to the shoe sensei <laughs> in my phone. So <laughs> Oh, great. <laughs> I'm going to go forward. Great. That's hilarious. Yeah. What are you doing in a couple of weeks? I do need a new pair. So uh, I'll just FaceTime with you while you're there. <laughs> Jeez, the modern relationship. <laughs> yeah. um, all right. So tell us a little bit more about yourself. Uh, how old are you? Uh, 44. Or I'll be 45 next month. All which right. Feels a little bit weird. Yeah. Really? It's so funny because as you like start to get a little older, you're like, oh man, 
35 is not so old. 40 is not so old. 45 is not so old because you kind of have this a similar mindset to when you were 20, 25, you know? Yeah. I don't know. It's it's like that well, doesn't not, seem old. It's not weird in the sense that I feel like I'm getting old necessarily other than I used to always look up to people like, oh, man, that guy knows so much. And now I'm starting to self-actualize in a sense where I'm like, man, I'm actually that guy. There are people that look at me and, and I'm now that old person. And, and it not in a bad way. <laughs> yeah. But more in a way like, oh, actually, I'm here. I've arrived and let's yeah. embrace this role. So for so, me, it's kind of a cool thing. Yeah. Okay. So it's a cool thing for you because you go, I used to look up to the 45-year-old. Mm-hmm. So how I feel, maybe this is just <laughs> me. I go, yeah, I used to look up to the 40-year-old and ask advice. But now that I'm here... I realized how much I don't know. Mm-hmm. And so I was asking all these people who really were also had no clue trying to figure out life. So I, I'm kind of joking because I know more than I did 10 years ago. Sure. But I'm almost coming to this realization how like life is kind of messy for everybody and everybody's still trying to grow. So it's just kind of funny. Like, well, the same do time, I know that much? Now that you've reached this, this age, I know in the age that I've reached as well, knowing that I still don't know a lot. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm actually giving myself permission to to flash forward backwards to when I was 16, 15 and go, man, those guys didn't know what they were talking about. I was right, you know, or but also some satisfaction in knowing that even those people that I looked up to as these wise sages, yeah. they definitely were struggling with the same things that I'm struggling yeah. with now. Yeah. But they were able to pull it off with confidence and were still way wiser. So yeah. um I still find a lot of satisfaction in that. Even though I'm just like you where I have a lot of lot more questions than answers. Right. Which I think is probably healthy to admit to it. I think Mm -hmm. if we're sitting here going, we know it all, then nobody wants to hear what we have to say because they're like, we can't relate to you because you're a liar. (laughs) Right. Right. Um, Okay. So almost 44 um, married. Mm -hmm. How many years have you been married? Uh, 17 this June. Dang. Yeah. Coming up. And then how you have two kids and how old are each of your kids? Uh, 15 and 11. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you waited a couple, you got married and waited a couple years before you had the first kid. So kind of solid. It seems that way, but we, uh, Rachel was pregnant about five years, five months after we were married. So we actually didn't. Okay. So you didn't wait. Yeah. So we had Ryland, um, 14 months after we were married. So it was, um, that's pretty quick. Yeah, it was pretty quick, actually. Yeah, it's yeah. pretty quick. It feels like we didn't have a whole lot of just her and I time. Mm. And uh, Did you pay- date for a long time before or no? Kind of. Um, uh, we had probably, we had a one-year engagement. Okay. And a two to three-year kind of off-and-on relationship gotcha. prior to that. Yeah. So, which maybe we can get into at some point. But we're starting to pay for that now a little bit. Yeah, it's funny. It's or it's not funny, but you look at how life happens and there's all these like really fun things that are happening like marriage and then house and then kids and then new mm-hmm. jobs and and like I feel like so many of us cuz a lot of people who've been on the podcast have been kind of at that like 35 to 45 year old age, so mm-hmm. similar life, mm-hmm. you know? And um the marriage struggles a lot with all those exciting things because it's I don't know. You know, you know how it goes. Yeah. Well, you're kind of forced to grow and the marriage has to grow along with it. And a lot of those milestones that you just rattled off take up a ton of your time on their own. Kids being probably the number one. Right. And our culture, I mean, it seems as though our culture really puts a big emphasis on our kids, which is cool, man. I I love my kids. It's the fatherhood podcast, right. but it's also realizing that you, you need to be you and you mm-hmm. need to 
have time with your wife, which is hard, especially, I mean, you look at, you know, a lot of women, their identity, a lot is wrapped up in the kids, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm, I'm finding that I talked about this on a podcast recently with pastor Nathan was just, you know, you and I have our identity at work, right? you know, um, a lot of times, at least the, the, the wife, if they could kind of have their identity wrapped up in the kids, which is hard, mm-hmm. you know, so being in tune with that. So anyways, we could go on tons of tangents. So two kids, uh, 15 and 13, 11, 11, right? Yep. Um, and then obviously for work, you are in insurance. How long you've been doing that? Yeah, I've been doing insurance. So this is my 14th year going into it. And I've been strictly doing same thing as you employee benefits yeah. in the health insurance world dental vision. Uh, I have the privilege of working with, um, well over a hundred different business owners and I'm just one of their advisors on how to help them with their business. Um, and what I would consider probably their most important asset, which is their employees. Yeah. For most business owners that I work with, their employees are the backbone of their business. And so I help them take care of that, that asset, uh, which is their employees, ensuring that they're healthy, but then also that they're happy and that they want to stay there a really long time. And it's been good. Yeah, it's actually a really good opportunity. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought you were going to maybe give your phone number too and try and hack <laughs> yeah. anybody who's listening on to website. my podcast. <laughs> well, Great if commercial. they want a second-rate agent, they can stay with you. <laughs> we established up front that I'm the sensei, right? Yeah. Dang it. <laughs> I wear uh, white robes to Brad all Brad Davis needs. is from Canada and sells uh, insurance in Canada. <laughs> um as you've been a father, you've, you've already hit some different stages with your kids. What has been one of, or some of the best resources to you as a father? Oh man. Uh, well just my community of friends Mm. has been a really good resource. Um, I would say my number one resource though has been my wife in the sense that she's the primary caretaker of our children. Um, she stays at home with them. Um, she gets them off to school and takes them to school and, uh, attends a lot of the events. She sits on uh, a lot of different boards, um, with the school, um, not on the PTSA board, but, but a lot of different things. She's very, very, very involved. involved huh? She's also a researcher. And so she does, it's almost like having a paralegal for parenting because she, she goes on and she just, she listens to a ton of podcasts. Mm. She reads a lot of books. Um, she, started loading me up with all of these books and she started to see that my nightstand couldn't handle any more books. (laughs) So she's actually even more awesome in the sense that she's now started uh, tagging with little sticky notes and highlighting and saying, Hey, just read pages 13 through 17. Nice. (laughs) So she's gotten to know me as well. And, and my style of of being able to learn, because I can't digest an entire book and then sit down and go, all right, pages 13 and 17, where were the meat we're from. Right. So she's gotten really good at that. But then also, just talking to other uh, parents, we've lived in the same neighborhood practically our entire married lives uh, and definitely for our, our children's entire lives. So as the kids got older and started attending sports, uh, we got to know those parents. And then my son was actually at the same school, K through eight. So he was there for nine years. And you just get to know all of those teachers and those teachers live in our neighborhood. And then we get to know those other parents. And so I've got a good cross-section of other uh, parents, uh, especially the men to, to bounce it off on. I try to weight the opinions of those that have similar values to me, um, mm. you know, religious Christian, um, more than some of the others. But I also know that, um, I'm raising my children to become adults and they're going to have to operate in a world where they're not part of just this small one and a half mile square block. They're going to have to go out and operate. So it's good to get 
the opinions and listen to other men and women out there that are completely different from me. And those are almost as much of a valuable resource as even those that are an echo chamber for me. Yeah. That's good, man. It's something to be said about living in a community, a same community. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like on one hand, I could go, man, it'd be cool to, to, you know, you move your kids around a bit. My daughter's moved around different schools and stuff, mm-hmm. but I guess everybody's different. It's like you can either adapt and become great at making friends or not, you know? So I think overall having that stability and consistency is really fantastic for kids and for a family. Yeah, It's got its pros and cons. We've We've also actually moved, gosh, we've, we've owned four different homes, but in, in kind of this all within eight blocks of each other. That's crazy. So we've lived in the exact same neighborhood, but even when you just go a couple blocks over, it's a whole new set right. of friends and parents, um, to go from. So, and we keep a lot of the same stable ones that we've had, you know, for, for the better part of a decade. But at the same time, we've, we've been able to shake things up a little bit by, you know, moving and, mm-hmm. and transitioning into a new home and how it's all set up and new furniture and all these different things while keeping the backbone of the community that we've had our entire children's lives. Yeah. So it's a little bit of both. Yeah. So I feel we, we didn't plan it that way. I mean, looking back, it's like, wow, we were really good about that. But um, it, it's been a real blessing that it happened that way, um, whether we did it consciously or not. Yeah. Cool. The podcast is Fatherhood Field Notes. So it's, you know, just regular dads sitting down, kind of open up their life, open up their heart, let us look at their field notes and dig into like, what have you learned? What have you struggled in? What has been good? Um, so that we can all grow from each other, you know, because as men and just people in general in our fast paced culture, we don't always sit and share the stuff that matters. And so this is a pause to sit down and talk about some stuff that matters. Uh, and so we're going to get into some a specific story in a minute, your story. But before we do that, kind of the overarching theme is rebel and create. Mm-hmm. It's on the wall right there behind you. It is can mean a lot of things, but really it's to rebel against some status quo and create something that you prefer or you desire or you are created for out of that. Um, and on a side note, really, uh, you and I, I was having a hard time, gosh, three, four months ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was in the, I don't know what it was about, but I remember texting about five friends and saying, Hey, I need you guys to be thinking about me, praying for me. I'm having oh, a right, rough yeah. week. And, um, I think my response initially was new phone who dis, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I responded with humor. No, you're, re- but quickly discerned that you were serious. It might've been. Yeah. It was weird, man. It was like, I hadn't had that almost like depressed, dark feeling hit me, Sure, you know? And so I was like, I need to make sure I'm surrounding myself. And so you were like, uh, you called me, can you meet tomorrow? And I was like, man, that's super rad. I've got a 30 minute window from eight 30 to nine. You're like, let's do it. We sat down for coffee and you set your timer for 30 minutes right? and just said, put our phones away. All right, let's get into it and talk about it. And it was great. And you really helped me to not just look at the challenges I was having, but look backwards. But here's the ticket of why I bring this up. At the end of it, you drop this bomb on me. You go, it's like, we're about to get up, you know, we're about to get up. I think you're like, Hey, by the way, do you know what rebel means? (laughs) And what came over me was this fear of like, uh, oh my gosh, it means something I didn't know. It doesn't mean what I think it does. It means this awful thing. (laughs) You know, that's how I felt. I was like, uh, I think so, but I I can confirm the look on your face when I said that (laughs) was definitely one of fear. But then now 
it means even more to me. So why don't you give me the, if you remember the kind of explanation of that you gave me? Sure. Well, you know, almost our entire friendship, I shared with you early on, I've been really fascinated. My favorite word in the entire English language is barely a word. It's re, R-E. That's funny because I thought your favorite word was a four-letter word I heard you say, <laughs> but I won't there, say it There here. are those out there that would argue. That's true. But uh, there are many of those. There's so many four-letter words. But uh, the two-letter word R-E is, I've been fascinated with it, <laughs> re, and, and, and I'll, I'll go into more detail later. But when you shared with me your concept of rebel and create, which you also did very, very early on, um, I was fascinated because the word R-E shows up twice in that statement, uh, once at the beginning of rebel and then right in the middle of create. Mm. And I thought, oh, that's cool. Maybe Ned and I are destined to be friends. And here we are still friends, which I know is a really hokey thing. But either way, you and I have had a good re- friendship. Yeah, definitely. Whether that word has any meaning or not. But the word rebel uh, is, well, re just means to do over, right? Re is, you're either, you can be remarried, reborn, re, you put the, you put re on the front of any word and it, it really changes the meaning of that word, which is why I've always been fascinated hmm. with those two letters. And the word rebel, re is on the front of a word bell. And bell, I believe it's a Latin phrase, but bell means war. And uh, like bellum, maybe in your old history days, you've heard of antebellum. This, this was stuff before the war. So it comes from the word bell or bellum, hmm. which is war. And rebel means to re-war. So you're starting a war over again. It's another way of saying, you know what? those people's opinions or that topic is not settled. And so I'm going to engage all over again and refight this war to change that supposed outcome, that conventional wisdom. So that's why it's going against conventional wisdom. I love it because it's like nothing's finished. Right. So when you think this thing is finished, get up and go after it again. Sure. Yeah. Like you can keep getting up. Yeah. It's beautiful, man. And well, and it's also a lot to me. Well, the word rebel is just not, a really great acceptable term in our society. Anyway, people are like, Oh, don't rebel. You got to kind of fall in line. But, and you were so fascinated with it. I was like, well, what does that word really mean? So I looked it up and I thought, oh, actually, I really like that idea of being able to go against conventional wisdom. So, so what am I rebelling against? Yes. Um, man, I've listened to some of your podcasts and, uh, this, all the good ones were taken and I wanted <laughs> to be different, <laughs> but if I'm being really honest, I'm not even making this up. I, I honestly think that what I'm rebelling against is death hmm. of all things and not just literal death, right? Each day I wake up in the morning, I take my first breath. Uh, I know I've been, if, if everything's gone while well, I've been breathing the entire night, but just taking a breath each time is in its own way rebelling against death because I'm choosing to stay alive. But also metaphorically, um, you know, in our own industry, for example, health insurance, um, there's a lot to like about health insurance. There's also a lot to hate about it. Mm -hmm. uh, If you look at the political side of it and can I just sit back and let nature take its course and, um, you know, still serve my clients well, but not really be actively engaged in something. Or can I take my fight out there and re-engage with, um, shaping healthcare for the future so that my kids are going to live in an environment where healthcare is amazing like it is now in our United States. Um, or, uh, for example, um, you know, marriages, uh, my own marriage, for example, if it's, if it's starting to, um, flicker out or we've got areas that just need a whole bunch of work, can I remarry my wife each day? Um, if I think of it in a metaphorical term like that, there's, there's no, there's no reason that I can't remarry on a daily basis. And so the death of a marriage, the death of an industry, the death of anything 
um, that I face uh, daily, I want to revive a lot of it. And at the same time, allow some things to just wither away because there are some unhealthy things in my life that I need to let die so that I can be reborn mm. in this. And so there's always a re in there. And even through death, there is a rebirth in so many things. And so sometimes rebelling against death means death in itself, yes. which is a weird circle, but it's, it is what it is. And, and if we don't think about it in those terms and are aware of it, um, we'll just die without rebirth and we'll just punch a clock and just, you know, allow the kids to do whatever they want, allow your marriage to go on, um, just, uh, autopilot and they'll just die out unless you become aware of it and take control of it and don't let it die and let those parts that need to wither away, wither away and then allow the rebirth. So, man, that is so, so good. As you're, as I'm sitting here listening to you talk about it, like I had this image of a, of a man in the woods with a fire mm -hmm. and the fire's going, you know, and when the fire's going, sometimes we kind of wander away. We kind of neglect it. You know, and then I just saw the dude come back and there's a small flicker. And instead of like you're saying, instead of just like letting it go out and be like, oh, gosh, it's done. I got to start over somewhere else. Right. It's like he's down there getting the little twigs, doing the little stuff from the beginning again. Even if you think about, let's just say a marriage, like you said, OK, I got to do the notes again and the flowers and the dates. Sure. And you're like just down there blowing on the flame to try and get it back. I just that image of continuing to go after it and you're fighting against death is amazing because we can so easily just become complacent and let things die. Right. It's like a lot easier. Yeah. And even as men, it, it's even easier because we compartmentalize uh, in general. Right. And so we can mm -hmm. allow certain compartments to die off. And so sometimes we don't feel like we're dying. I personally don't feel like I'm dying in some cases because, hey, these three areas of my life are going amazing. Oh, see, that's a good thing to point out. Yeah, mm -hmm. because sometimes we'll just focus in on whatever the good thing is right. and let the other thing die out. Right. But I think that's a lot of times where you hear of people, let's say older, you know, have regret because when all this, it all settles, mm -hmm. then you go, man, I wish I would have just invested a little bit more time with my kid. Right, giving it your all. Yeah, giving it my all. So at the end of it, even if the thing does happen to die because we can't control everything. We won't have that regret that uh, I didn't let it die. It just had to die. Yeah. Which is also kind of a weird thing to think. Yeah. It's weird because but... <clears throat> some things do need to, uh, to, to spring other life up as well. Like even, even a, a fire in itself using your metaphor to take it to another degree, some tree had to die to give life to that fire. And so there's just, there's, there's death all around us, but that's not a scary thing in itself. Um, death is necessary to bring life to other things. You know, you look at right now, it happens to be January. So in our area in Sacramento, all the leaves have fallen off all these trees. So they have, they look dead, right? Those leaves died, mm. but here in a couple of months, they're going to start sprouting all these new leaves and it's a whole new spring. And the, out of that death, a whole new life has begun. And usually the trees are even bigger, which becomes a pain in the neck if they're on your property. But you know what I mean? Like it's, and, and God put all this stuff around us. So it's not just hokey to, to have this like feeling about nature and what it's telling us about life. But God put this here kind of as a symbol for us. Uh, if you believe in a, a heavenly creator, that's, that's the message that here it's like, yeah. we have our seasons, things do need to die, but out of them come a new life. Yeah. So just ensure that it's not a total, total death and, um, you know, new life continues to come. 
man, my daughter, she's probably nine at the time, punched me in the face with some wisdom. <laughs> yeah, you probably deserved it. <laughs> We're driving down the road just here by my house, mm-hmm. and it's this time of year. All the leaves had fallen off, and I'm like, kids, look at how beautiful the trees are with all the leaves gone. And I was working hard because it's, you know, fourth quarter, and that's when our busy season sure. is for our work. And she goes, Dad, you know why all the leaves fall off, right? <laughs> No, actually, I don't. You gave her that same look you gave me when I asked you if you know what rebel meant. I'm not a smart man. Uh, she said, all the leaves fall off because the leaves get really heavy for the tree. They get really heavy, so they need to fall off to give it rest so that then it can collect nutrients. And she used the base of the tree. She talked to something she learned in school so that then the tree can get nutrients from the ground and store it in its base so that it then has enough energy for the rest of the year to grow and grow leaves and feed itself. Oh, wow. And I'm like, you need a rest, bro. You need to rest. <laughs> yeah. You need to let go of some leaves. Mm-hmm. You need to pay attention to what the season's telling you, what your nine-year-old's telling you. And it was really good, man. Man, that's good wisdom. I love that. Yeah, and and she's just taking what she learned in school to help grow me. Yeah. Even uh, even science, right? God speaks to us even through science and nature and or through the mouth of a nine-year-old. Yep. I like that. It was good, good, man. I know what everybody listening is thinking, that Brad and Ned took mushrooms before this podcast, <laughs> but we didn't. <laughs> this is just how we end up talking. That's right. This is how we when talk. When we hang out. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Oh man. Okay. So I love what you are rebelling and creating. Yeah. Um, oh, uh, I don't think I spoke to what I was creating and I thought about it. So I want to get it. In okay. There. Yeah. Do it. It's quick though. I, I like to create space. Um, so out of the rebelling against death, right? So you're, you're, you are bringing life, right? You're, you're working to bring life to things and not just the healthy areas of your life, but the, but all areas of your life. So in that, I mean, I hear you're creating a lot, even in just that piece sure. that you shared. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And the, well, kind of like what you said, your daughter said, it, it, out of that uh, creation, out of that rebelling with the, with the death and all that stuff, creating space for new life to go. Mm. So shedding the leaves so that new life can bloom. So that's what I, that's actually what I mean by creating space yeah. is, yeah, I, I a long time ago, I decided to become the master of time. And it sounds crazier or more lofty than it really is, but I began to calendar almost everything I do in business. And I think a lot of people do. It's not I'm not unique in that sense. But I really took a hold of my life by really utilizing my calendar. So I'm able to control all the things like my appointments, um, you know, renewals and the seasons of all that stuff. And as long as it's on my calendar, it's 100% manageable. And the other thing that began to show up once I began putting everything on my calendar were these holes in my calendar. I began to notice, oh, wow, I've got three hours here. I've got two and a half hours there. You described a 30-minute window before. If you didn't have a calendar and all that stuff put out there, you wouldn't have had that 30 minutes of space to give time for a talk between yeah. me and you. And so that's uh, what I mean by by creating space where sometimes it's uh, just a quick text back and forth between me and my wife. Um, I, early on, I used to not, I used to hate when she bothered me at work. It's like, man, I'm at work. These are my eight hours. I'll, you know, attend to this later, but that's such a terrible way of thinking. And so, um, I'm still working on that one. Yeah. Well, and, and sometimes you're in appointments. It's hard to, to, you know, excuse me while we're in the middle of talking, I'm going to answer this text from my wife, but, but by creating space, uh, it also takes away the stress of just 
um, time lingering over you. So for example, to sit down up here, I, I blocked off four hours on my calendar mm. to sit here with you. So, because I know that you and I tend to talk quite a bit. In yeah. fact, we chatted out in front of your um, treehouse for like an hour before we got in here, but I was zero stress about it because I knew I had a huge block of time here. And so by creating that space on my calendar, it frees me and you up to have this really casual conversation. Yeah. Also, it works with my wife, with my kids, with my coworkers, et cetera, and just being able to create that space. So rebelling against death and creating space. Yeah. Let me ask you this on the time thing, and then I want to jump into your story is, uh, do you also calendar your family time? Um, not all of it, but yes. So my wife and I fell years ago, um, I asked her to start sending me at least a monthly email of all the big things we have, you know. Oh, that's cool. Um, does our daughter have... Um, you know, a recital here or his son's golf tournament or something like that, uh, family dinner here, or it's so-and-so's birthday. And so uh, she's been really good about sending me this email with like eight or nine bullet points. These are what the next six weeks look like. And I literally go one by one and put them in my calendar. And I'm even so um, OCD that I've gotten to the point where I've color-coded everything. Yeah. Um, open enrollments have a different color in my calendar versus renewals versus kid activities and family activities. And so, um, it's actually kind of sick, but it's easy for me to just quickly look at my color code and go, wow, there's a lot of orange on there. So clearly this is a lot of work. You know, mm. if there was a lot more blue, which is kids activities, then I know, all right, I'm doing a lot more kids activities and family activities now. So I do, I don't calendar all of them because again, a lot of the stuff that happens between family just happens organically in those spaces that I've created, but I absolutely put um, family stuff on the calendar. I think that's important. I mean, I think that stuff happens when it's on the calendar. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, for, for me, you know, and, and so I like to hear like what other people are doing that they found successful, you know, like my wife and I've been trying for months to have like every Monday morning or every Tuesday morning, we sit down for a half an hour and go over the calendar and maybe once a month it happens on that day and the rest, it's like, we're kind of fitting it in somewhere. So we're working towards that, but yeah. like the email is a great idea. Hey, here's the thing, you know, I've heard of other people sharing calendars, yeah. uh, but we don't do that, you know, but that yeah, the works email for works for too. us. Cause it would be great if we could sit down and have, you know, a weekly family meeting, you right. know, she's the CEO, I'm the CFO or whatever, reverse, whatever. And we're having our little meeting about our family business, but it just doesn't work that way. Yeah. So it's, and it usually happens. I have to remind her sometimes cause it should go, Oh, do you have this on your calendar? Cause she's, she's on boards. I'm yeah. on boards. So we have certain nights where we're away. There's just different things that are going mm -hmm. on. So life's and we, full and we forget. And so I have to remind her, Oh, you know what? You haven't sent me a calendar, you know, thing in a while. And so she'll send me a nice email with it all. And it's great. It's good for her. It's good for me. She keeps a paper calendar. Mm -hmm. I keep a digital calendar. Um, although she's getting much better with the digital calendar. So for us to share, it would be her literally taking a picture of her calendar and then sending it to me via right. text. So, Which is funny. It's the same. We're the same way. I'm like, we could do a Google calendar, but she likes to have it written down. Mm -hmm. And I like to, I mean, I use my phone so much for work. Right. So it's, it's on there. All right, man. Well, I want to get into your story, your fatherhood story as actually your father and your experience with that. And then let that kind of dig into a little bit of the man that you've become and how that's impacted you as a father um, and how you've made the choices you've made to, to love and take care of your kids. So where do we start? Yeah. Well, for, for me, it just, it goes back to, well, my father was shot and killed when I was four years old. I, it was March. So it was, it was a month after I turned four. So I was barely four. And my younger brother was six months old at the time. 
And that's important because my, my father was a, a, a Marine at the time. He was on a leave of absence, as I understand it. And I don't think that he and my mother were on the best of terms. So at the time, my mother was in California and my dad was visiting family in Minnesota. And they both come from very rough pasts. Uh, they were raised in what my mom calls the projects. And they were kind of the success story to come out of the projects because my dad was a Marine. He mm. got a marksman badge and um, they moved to California and life was really good. And they were high school sweethearts. But of course, it's always rocky. But my dad fell back into with some friends that were um, not good people. And he ended up burglarizing some homes. And when he got back, uh, this is, um, or was he on leave? He or? was on on a, on a leave at this time, still active, but on leave. And uh, I don't know if it was just a vacation or what it was. I mean, it was four, so I don't know yeah. specifically. Yeah. And it was hard to get the, the the big details out of my mother. But during that time, he burglarized a home. Apparently, found a safe, and in the safe were a bunch of stock certificates that had a bunch of value to the person who owned them, but not so much to my father. And so my dad called that person, ended up calling that person that owned the stock certificates and said, hey, for a certain amount of cash, I'll give you these stock certificates back, uh, thinking he was going to make some money on the deal. And the guy said, yeah, great. Let's meet at a Greyhound station. And what my father didn't think through, um, this happens to all of us, it could happen to any of us, is the consequences of all that stuff was that that man was like, well, this guy doesn't know what I look like. So he called the cops and they sent an undercover police officer to the bus station to meet mm. my dad instead. And my dad had, I don't know whether it was loaded or unloaded, but he had a revolver, a gun, a handgun. And when the cop, they were doing the deal and the cop pulled the badge on him, I guess my dad panicked, pulled his gun out, didn't point it at the officer as I understand it, but pulled the gun out and then started to run. Um, and as he was running away, the cop shot him in the back of the head while he was running away. And um, my dad actually ended up living, as I understand it, for about 21 days on life support. And they ended up pulling the plug um, on March 14th, uh, 1979, and which was the day after my grandmother's birthday. And I only remember all that because my mom said she didn't want to pull the plug on my grandmother's birthday. But the hard part there, and the reason I bring all that up is because then my mother was left single um, she was only 22, I believe at the time with two kids, um, a, a, a just barely four year old and a barely six month old and living in California, uh, yeah. away from her family in Minnesota. Yeah. And one thing led to another, um, my mom, she did eventually, eventually remarry a couple years later and we even, and she even had another, um, child with, uh, who was my stepfather at that time. Um, and that, and they had a, um, and that that's my half brother. He's 10 years younger than me. So I have two brothers. And, but through that course, my mom herself, just dealing with whatever it was, her depression, being single, whatever the case was, started turning to alcohol. Mm. And then, um, as was the time started smoking a pot and then got into some really heavy drugs, um, namely crystal meth and to support her crystal meth habit. She would sell weed across state lines. So my mom, I don't know if she was some kind of kingpin or not, but she was delivering pounds of, of marijuana across state lines and actually ended up getting busted, um, in Dang. Wyoming, uh, by the DEA. So would she leave for days on a time? Oh yeah. And you would be at home? Yeah, I'd be at home. And the, and your stepdad would be around? My stepdad would be there who was a workaholic at the time. And then my aunt eventually moved in as well, because when my mom got busted, she had to spend time in jail. 
And so how old are you and your mom went to jail? I was um, 11, sixth grade. Dang. Mm-hmm. Dude, like you remember sixth grade. Yeah, you, you know? remember sixth grade. Absolutely. And My you're... mom would send me these long, depressed, flowery letters. Looking back now, she she also passed away when I was 29. So so she she passed away about 15 years ago now. Um, but looking back, she she was probably somebody that would have been diagnosed, um, you know, with uh, some sort of depression, maybe even possibly bipolar or something like that, up and down. And I don't know if it was just natural uh, part of where her, the way her brain worked, or if it was the crystal meth doing it. I don't know how much your listeners know about crystal meth, but it's one of those drugs where if you do it, you don't sleep and you don't eat Mm. and you end up being, if you do enough of it, you end up being awake for three, four, five days on end. And And you'd see your mom in these States, right? Manic. Yeah. My mom would write these really long flowery lists of chores for me and my brother to do. And she would, you know, tell us how much she loved us. And like, it was just, it was this weird manic behavior. It wasn't the kind where she went around cleaning the house, but she went around, you know, making lists for us to clean the house. Mm. Well, the consequence of being awake for three, four, five, six days at a time is one, the company you keep. Uh, so we had a bunch of riffraff in and out of our house all the time. Um, other drug users. And Did then, you feel, go ahead. Well, and then also you crash eventually. Mm. So I'd have these moments where my mom was awake for five days straight through the night and then down for five days straight. Just sleeping. Just, yeah, out. So would your stepdad take care of you guys or would you take care of your two younger brothers? Well, for a while he took care of us, but when it got so bad, he actually ended up leaving us Mm. um, and separating. Looking back, um, he probably stayed a whole lot longer than most men would have stayed, but he eventually just left. And when he left, did he take the, the, your youngest brother? No, nope, nope. So he just left. And then it became, again, my mother single with three boys and I'm 11 going on 12 at this time. And, um, at about that age, 12 and 13 is when I had to start depositing my mother's uh, social security checks, which she was getting because of the death of my father. Um, any welfare checks, um, I would receive the food stamps and go grocery stopping. It, it, It became this, uh, at around sixth and seventh grade, my mother would call me the man of the house. I'm her number one. Uh, you're the man of the house. And I took great pride in her saying that. I was like, mm. yeah, I am the man of the house. This is so great. I'm here. I am 12, 13 years old and I'm running a household. But and you weren't resentful or mad at her at the time. Not at the time. Yeah. I was a, a happy codependent uh, mm. to her because I also got a lot of freedom in that because I got to a lot of, make a lot of decisions. And when she's down for five days, man, I can play all the video games I want to play. I can invite people over myself, but looking back now in my very wise 44 going on 45 years, um, what a terrible thing for mm. a 12 year old, 13 year old to have to go through. And I mean, I had to, we didn't have a car. And so I would walk to the store, uh, which depending on what apartment we lived in, it's anywhere from a half mile to a mile and a half. I'd buy a ton of groceries cause you get your food stamps uh, back then it was once a month. And so I'd buy a ton of groceries and then I would carry basically five or six bags in each arm back a uh, half mile to a mile. I'd walk back to the house. And so my friends used to tease me because I had these gigantic neck muscles. And I still do. And I tell them it's, it's from carrying groceries. Um, Did you hide all that stuff from your friends or no? Oh yeah. We never talked about that. When, when, when I would go to either youth group or to school, everything was great. 
Are you kidding? In fact, when my mom got put in jail, we had these people come visit me at school and I sat in the principal's office and they were probably, I don't know exactly what they were. They're probably DEA agents or whatever started asking me questions. Oh, did you ever see your mom, you know, have white powder around the house? And I'm sitting there going, Oh, idiots. Like I know my mom does crystal. I'm not going to sell her out, you know? And I remember sitting there going, no, what white powder you mean like for cooking? You know, I've just played the fool and the idiot and a total codependent and uh, protected my mother at all costs. I mean, she's my mother. Yeah. I don't know what else to do. Yeah. Um, and she's of course addicted to these drugs. And so, you know, she was acting only the way she knew how to act. But, um, I did a lot of, um, you know, paying the rent, you know, grocery shopping, disciplining my brothers. Um, it was, man, I wish I didn't have that childhood, but that's what I grew up with. And so I ended up maturing. I'm going to put it that in quotes because, um, I had to grow up faster. My childhood was kind of robbed for me at an early age. That doesn't mean I was a mature person or that makes me even more mature now as, as most people would define that. But I didn't have the same childhood like my brother has, or I mean, my son has right now, Mm, which, mm. you know, pretty carefree and he gets to go out and, you know, play in the yard and not have to worry about anything that's going on at the house. Uh, I had to worry about all that stuff. I had, I had a couple of really close friends that, um, two, in fact, that I would invite over and they were the only ones who knew about my mother's problem, mm. you know, and they were trusted, but we were mostly over at their house and all that different stuff. But, um, that's how I grew up. And I ended up, you know, as far as a father figure goes, I grew up, uh, hearing stories about how awesome my father was. So my grandmother From, and my mom. Oh, okay. So your grandma and your mom would tell you how awesome your dad was. Yeah. And, and my grandmother on my mother's side, so not even... Oh, it wasn't his mom. Yeah, it was, your... it was his mother-in-law. Wow. So, because his family, including his mother and, and brothers and all them, they all lived in Minnesota. And we were living in California at the time. And like, you probably didn't fly out there to see no, them. No, no. In fact, I don't know. I remember seeing them once, maybe when I was 11, then again when I was 16. Mm. And I've since rekindled much more of a relationship with them. Um, but this was... Uh, basically my father's mother-in-law telling me what a great man my father was. So I, I grew up with this father figure that was really words, you know, stories about how great my father was. And I believe them all. He was probably a fantastic human being that made a couple poor choices. And wow, one of those ended up in death. When did you find out that your dad had been shot? At what age did you, or did you just kind of always know? Um, Nobody ever just straight up told me. I think I had my suspicions early on. Mm. Um, in fact, I may have heard even when I was four that he was shot, but I had no idea the circumstances surrounding it. You know, when your father's in the military, it's easy to just go, he was shot and killed in military action. Right. In fact, when I tell most people that my father died when I was four and he was a Marine, I just let them believe that he died serving our country. It's just easier that way sometimes. Um, those that seem safe to me, I'll, I'll open up and share the whole story. But, um, what's the difference for you? Well, there's a major difference. In fact. Yeah. So I found out probably my aunt, the, the same one that stayed with us when my mother was in jail for that, that time when I was in sixth and seventh grade, she was the one who ended up telling me the whole story while we were camping around it, how he stole you know, so you remember safe. this, you were yeah. camping and yeah. you were with her and right. As I'm sitting here, I am remembering now. I remember there was a, there was an unveiling one time while we were camping and she told me the whole story and, um, never lost respect for my father at that time. Never thought, 
oh, he's a bad person for this. But I thought, oh, wow, that's a, that's a piece of my dad's story that I had never heard before. And now in my 44 years of wisdom, looking back, we already talked about this earlier about even people who were old back then didn't have it all figured out. Right. My father was 21, 22 right. at this time. He didn't have it all figured out. He was probably just trying to provide for his family. You know, he was having a rocky marriage with my mother, um, who's probably bipolar. <laughs> and of course he's having a hard time, but he made some bad decisions in that. And it's the difference is important to me because what we do and the choices we make and the things we do every day of our lives matter. Those decisions we make matter. What we do as a father to provide matters and how we go about it matters as well. And had he survived that uh, and lived, of course we would have wanted, I would have wanted to show him grace and would love him unconditionally as a father. And I would have loved him to live long enough to be able to atone for that and do right and, and be, you know, the father that he envisioned himself being Mm -hmm. at that time as well. But it's important for me because people do make mistakes. Most of us don't die from the mistakes we make. He did. And it started a very major, uh, series of events in my life growing up with a drug addicted mother, single and all that stuff. So it completely changed my childhood. His actions, his one action, which, which didn't, which he didn't get to atone for right or or redeem whatever right and still i mean he hasn't he's dead now so he can't he can't redeem for it so what does that mean to you as you going through your life with making mistakes well being more aware of them is really important and knowing that that and that's that's where that whole rebelling against death thing comes from because even if it's not just the physical death there are some things some paths that we're on whether uh, it's drinking or drugs um, or other addictions that are out there. There's the, there's many, mm-hmm. especially now in our new modern age where the world is at our fingertips. We can die to ourselves um, through those addictions. Yeah, And being aware of them is, is step one. And that's why it mattered that I knew my dad's story to know that he wasn't this perfect person that my, my grandmother and mother were telling me he was, that he actually did make mistakes. And man, that really sucks because he died from one of them. Um, but at any minute... We could die from any mistakes we make, either a true physical death or a long metaphorical death. Dang. Which may be yeah, worse. It's good to be aware of. Mm-hmm. I yeah, think about it, it sometimes. Worse. Yeah. Well, in our world, gosh, even texting while driving can have the same exact result of my father robbing and, and having a, an interchange. Right. And then you go set this mom off with, you know, years of. Right. No, you know, no, nobody around. So she's got kids and then everybody copes with things differently. Mm-hmm. So you could text and die and your spouse raise your kids and fall into drugs all because of this little thing. Yeah. It, Dang. it steamrolls. It just, it just builds up. And so, so, so everything matters. All of the choices we make on a daily basis matter. So how do you, how do you be in tune with that? So you realize like, Okay, every action matters, but it doesn't cripple you to go, I'm not going to get in a car. I'm not going to do anything. You know, I'm not going to do anything. So how do you kind of live in the balance of both? Um, I'll let you know when I figure it out. Yeah, <laughs> but, exactly. But, huh? but what I've done, what I've done to try to help in that area is be in as honest and vulnerable as I can with that community I talked to you about earlier. Yeah. That community of men. You're one of them, right? Uh, we've got other you know, friends, mutual friends as well. 
And if I can be just open and honest and vulnerable with them about some of the struggles that I'm having or, or why I did this, it actually opens up, it creates a space for a conversation. Mm-hmm. That's the thing. Like, like if I came, if you're in I's relationship, every time I saw you, it was like, oh yeah, Annette, everything's great. And you're like, yeah, everything's great. And we just talked about how awesome life was. We'd have a relationship, but it wouldn't be much of a relationship. It'd be very surface level and not very deep. But you and I have never had a problem with going, oh man, I'm struggling with these four or five things. And and then I go, wow, Ned shared something really cool there. I'm now going to share with him something yeah. I'm struggling with. And then, then you and I start to have a really deep, you know, more meaningful relationship because we're sharing with each other. Do you think a lot of people have that? Um, I'd like to think, yes. Hmm. I think that the way our society is structured now, uh, you have to work harder at it. Yeah. Um, even yeah. in like a church, for example, you would think that church, you know, a typical American church would be the ideal place to have community. But if your church is one of, has a culture in it where you show up wearing your best clothes and you smile and you sing and you raise your hand during certain songs and you're the culture of that church is kind of forcing you to make it, you, you say, my life is great. You're going to have nothing but surface level relationships yeah. with all those people in your yeah. supposed community. Whereas if the culture in a church or any community for that example, for that matter was more like, you know what, actually come in your, your, your worst clothes, come warts and all, whatever it is, you know, let's just, because grace is extended automatically in advance. So you're in a safe spot. Yeah. If, if I'm willing to say, there's nothing you can say to me, Ned, that's going to make me stop being your friend. You're going to be a lot more willing to say things to me, even some of the ugly stuff that only God knows at this point. And maybe even you don't think God knows because you're keeping it secret from him too. You think you are. So I feel if we could create better spaces where that vulnerability exists more, uh, we can be more honest with each other. We actually get to see more honest selves. It's kind of like you look at the Instagram world, you can tell which pictures have filters on them right. and which do not. And uh, which mm. ones were the best picture out of 15. And we're all guilty of this. My Instagram feed is the same. But every once in a while, you'll get somebody going, hey, here's some of the unfiltered, terrible pictures that I didn't post. I enjoy those so much. It's like, oh, yeah, those are the ones, same ones on my phone, same ones in my life. And I can relate with that person a little bit more, even though it's through some shallow social media platform. But I think if we ran our own lives in that same way, our own relationships like you and I have and the relationships that I have in my neighborhood and, and community, I think we're going to get to know each other a lot more. Yeah. Less filters if mm-hmm. you're vulnerable. I mean, that's where real relation comes. And even through struggle, see, that's the interesting thing is so much of what we're talking about is struggle and how you've chosen to become who you are even in the struggle. But then with our own kids, especially in our culture and and how well we're all doing, you know, kind of in this world right now, is our kids don't have to go through some struggle. So it's like as a parent, how Mm -hmm. do you give them a taste of some struggle so that it helps shape them and that they don't just become entitled? You know, like you and I were talking before outside about you got lunch with your son and his friend and and your son saw the check and was like, oh, that's not that much. Right. You know, and perception of of well actually all the things that i had to do to work towards to get it to where we could spend 81 dollars on lunch right. uh it was a lot of struggle right and you don't have to see that so i know neither of us have the answer on that really yeah. either but that's 
it's it's what a time that we're living in right now where fathers like me and you uh, have to consider manufacturing adversity for our children so that they could have those struggles because we've worked so hard. You and I have become successful enough people where our families don't want for anything. They've got pretty much whatever they want on a moment's notice. And it's yes. And it's, and we're talking like, you know, food and a pair of Vans shoes or Nikes or something. Not like let's go have steak every night. Sure. But wait, you don't have steak every night. (laughs) Yeah, no, (laughs) but I'm comparing it, right. I'm comparing it to something. You look two steps behind. Mm -hmm. Like I waited for Christmas for a new shoe sometimes, right? you know, and then in your situation, you might've waited for something and, I don't know. Maybe never got it. I don't know. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's 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 uh, it's interesting you say that that we need to manufacture it or we consider manufacturing struggle. Right. Yeah. It's it because I mean I I think of it that way because I look back at my own childhood. It's the only thing I have to look back right. at. I don't have a father I can go to right now and say, hey, you know, what would you do? Right. My, my my son or my daughter's told me this. Can you believe they said that? What would you do in this? You know, Dad. I don't have those people to go to. I. I can only look backwards. I have a father-in-law and a mother-in-law. I have lots of father figures um, that that I go to, and we bring them up on occasion. Um, but man, it's it feels like we're in a brave new world right now. Um, I bet every generation says, "Oh, we never had to deal with this stuff." Yeah, our kids struggle with different things for sure. You know, there are other things. So I guess it's just helping to see that those things are a struggle mm-hmm. and for us to go, yeah, that is a struggle. Let's manage through that. Yeah. But so, embrace it. You know, it's, yeah. don't treat it like it's a bad thing, you know, and, and, and say, all right, if there's a struggle here, uh, I know my natural reaction is, okay, what kind of money or what, what thing can I buy or what can I do to make this whole struggle go away? That's my natural reaction now because I have the means to do that at this time in my life. But my wife reminds me often and I need to remind myself often, you know what, actually step back and let this struggle happen because this is where a lot of learning is going to come mm, from. That's good as a parent to know, right? especially as a dude who wants to have the answer. You know, we do need to be there to give our kids wisdom, but to just let them deal with it and yeah. not fix it. Even if it's so simple, if we could walk in and solve it, we're not allowing them to grow into who they might need to be. Yeah. Man, that's good. Um, I had um, in my, my high school years... Um, I had a, another unique situation. I actually ended up confronting my mother about her drug problem when I was uh, 14 years old. One of, one of the houses we moved into, because we moved a lot because we just kept getting evicted. Mm. But one of the houses we moved into just happened to be across the street from a church. And I remember one time on one of those dark periods when my mother was down for four or five days. I remember looking across the street and seeing a bunch of kids playing. So I just ran over to the play like it was a playground. And it ended up being a youth group that was meeting. And they're like, who's this random kid, you know, but they totally took me in. And that's how I ended up finding, um, uh, my first community, I think, uh, and church and eventually Jesus. So is that the first church experience you ever had? Yeah, totally. Like, wow. Like there may have been an experience where I passed through a church for a wedding or yeah, something like yeah, that. Yeah. But in terms of like, man, that's making cool. the decision to like go to a Thursday night youth group at a church by far. And it happened on a random chance. Were it's funny because the church was an Episcopal church, 
And if you're 12 or 13, there's no way you know how to pronounce the word Episcopal on your own. So I used to always say Episcopal or Episcopalian. <laughs> and, and, and it wasn't until I actually went over there that, you know, how to say the word, which is it's insignificant funny. at this point. But it's just, we were literally on the corners. There was, there was my middle school on one corner, my house, City Hall directly across, and then this church. <laughs> that was the four corners. And my house was one of them. And I don't know why we were even there. Rent was cheap. But, uh, but that's how I found it. And the, the summer after I had um, first accepted Jesus into my life, I felt real empowered. I felt alive again. I felt like the world was uh, in high definition. Hmm. I felt like I had some, something renewed in me, something reborn in me. Um, I now know that as the Holy Spirit. But, but it, it enabled me to have conversations uh, with people and open up about my mother's drug problem. And I eventually confronted her about it and she wanted to get clean. Um, so, so, but she, her whole life in California revolved around drugs. So she said, you know, she called me Bradley. She's Bradley. I, I want to get clean, but I have to leave. I'm going to go, um, move in with my sister in Indiana. And I really, really want you to come with us, my two younger brothers, but you're doing really well right now. Um, I was getting great grades in school. She goes, if some family is willing to take you on, um, I, I will say goodbye um, for your benefit because I want you to succeed so much. So my mother, in a way, made a huge sacrifice to clean herself up by actually letting go of her oldest son, who at one point was the man of the house, right? Me. And I was 15 at this time. Man, that's even hearing you say that, man, that's... It was a huge, it was real heavy decision. And I had uh, my best friend. I had, I told you I had two really good friends. Mm -hmm. Uh, one of them was John, uh, last name, Medi. their family just for some reason took an interest in me, especially his father. How'd you meet this kid at that youth group? Just randomly going across the street to play with these kids. He was one of them. And then eventually I made really good friends with him and his family and, you know, one of my coping mechanisms is to act out in humor. Um, I know you probably oh, find really? that really hard to believe. <laughs> <laughs> but I was really popular in that church. So that family took me in. And here's my point is that I ended up getting another father figure. So I had my father, my biological father, till I was four. Then I had a stepfather for a few years. And then there was this period where I was the man of the house. And then I said goodbye to my own family, my two younger brothers and my mom. They moved to Indiana. And then at age 15, I moved in with my best friend and his family. And so I had a whole new mother and father. I call them my foster parents, um, although we never went through the official paperwork. It was it was pretty easy process, actually. But I live with them full time. Wow. And especially the dad. Um, I had a nickname for him. His name was Boogs. Um, long, funny story, but I'm not going to get into it. But Boogs was... If I have to look back and point to one major, major mentor, father figure in my life, it would be him for sure. Hmm. And I spent uh, almost four years living under his roof and then off and on another probably six to six months to a year when I was coming back from college. But he was the first person to really talk to me like an adult adult. And one of the first things he ever said to me, and I always remember this, is he goes, well, I'm not raising children. I'm raising adults. And so I'm going to treat you like an adult because I'm raising you to be an adult. Now, obviously he didn't treat his four-year-olds and five-year-olds probably as right. adults back then. But when you become a teenager and you've got opinions and you're driving and stuff, 
he wants to treat us like an adult. So we had real conversations. We would stay up late some nights and he would talk to me about politics. He would talk to me about religion, talk to me about sex, um, all these things that um, I didn't have a biological father to talk to about. And also he wasn't my biological father. So it seemed a lot easier to open up to him. Hmm. I wasn't embarrassed, not really embarrassed to talk to him about puberty and all those weird things. And, um, so I ended up really having a really great relationship with him and, and he was a great father figure. He passed away, um, about a decade ago now. Wow. So we've lost him, but um, that's huge. What do you think led him to let you live there? I mean, clearly that he's a great dude, great father, and then willing to share that with other kids too. Yeah. It's so interesting that you key in on that question because that that's a big deal. Like I think about bringing a kid in your kids 15 right now. Yeah. Think about letting his best friend come live with you because his mom, you know, if he comes to you and say, Hey, you know what? My mom's a drug addict and she's actually going to move so she could try and get her crap together. (laughs) Can I live with you and you feed me and take care of me and teach me and send me off to college. Right. Like I want to be, that's no small ask. No, it's not, you know, and, and it's incredible. Like I want to be that dude. Yeah. I want to be that man who's got, you know, that love, that heart for, for people. Right. And the whole family. I mean, it was a lot harder on the mom uh, than it was the father. The father, he was just one of those joyous, gregarious people. And I, even though it was probably difficult for him, I think it was a little easier, but the mother was really a struggle. Well, then for all, I mean, you think of all that comes with having a kid. Yeah. Well, and it actually even eventually became a struggle for my best friend. He was my best friend. Mm. And now all of a sudden I'm under his roof 24 seven sucking up his resources. Yep. And now I'm a, a competing force in his house, to be honest. And so our relationship had some struggles there. My, me and my best friend uh, as well. Um, but I think it got much stronger because of it. How'd you make sure it stayed strong? Well, I didn't, I mean, it was, uh, it was just a matter of it, it also, I mean, I, I don't want to backtrack too much, but I also, we, we were in the same grade and then we ended up where he was a grade ahead of me. I failed a year of high school after uh, you moved into their house. No, before oh. largely due to this deal, struggling with, with living with my mother and, and, tr- you know, moving all the time and having to take care of all that stuff. I actually ended up failing my freshman year of high school and then. That summer I found Jesus and then I got back into school and ended up getting straight A's. And that's when I confronted my mother. So that's why my mother, she was like, man, you really got back on track here. You really turned your life around, man. And you know what? I didn't think about it. Like before I, before I was more thinking about how hard it was for you to hear her say you should stay. Mm -hmm. But the second time around, as you bring it up, I go, man, that is really hard for her because she is somebody that that or you are somebody to her obviously right. the codependency but that she's alive and her kids are alive because of you mm-hmm. and so she must have really meant it to say you're going somewhere yeah and i don't want to hold you back from going somewhere that's that's a, that is a like i didn't think about it as a sacrifice yeah. for her i'm like oh i didn't at the time good either. get out of here because I, I don't have that connection to her. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but as I hear it again, being a parent going, I'm going to think of you and, and you need to, you need to go your way. I need to go mine. That's tough. Yeah. I, I took that decision on her part for granted at the time. At the Were you time, mad at her? Well, I would have been really mad at her if she would have said anything different. 
if she would have said, no, you're my child, you are underage, uh, you're a minor, you need to come with me. So you were happy that she was going to leave, not happy, but you were okay with her leaving and leaving you here. Yeah, I actually was. I was really, you've got to remember, I had had years of experience being somewhat of an adult at that time. So how then was it to submit to some family and not not be like, actually, I'm going to do it my own way. So let's let's end with with some of this because you're about to you could just go off and do your own thing. Yeah, probably. Mm-hmm. So how did you submit to this family and say this is probably what's best for me? <laughs> Not easily, you know. Looking back, there wasn't a whole lot of submitting on my part. You know, I was still a snotty nosed teenager mm-hmm. that knew better. I mean, I knew how banks worked. I knew how grocery stores worked. I mean, I knew, I knew. A whole lot of what 14, 15, 16-year-olds do not know about mm-hmm. now, paying rent, you know, how to apply for a rent and all these different things, how to get around a background check and all these different things. I mean, I could go on and on. So I brought a very big chip on my shoulder into this house, and that actually that made for some very um, tough times, even living in this house that, that wanted me there, that by choice allowed me to live there. Um but they had to re-choose that every single year. I mean, every year it wasn't a given that, that I had to stay there. I wasn't their child. Mm-hmm. There was even a time where I was like, all right, is there another family in the church that's willing to take Brad on? And I remember going, oh my gosh, no, I've, I'm part of this family. And so um, looking back, I could have done so much more. I could have been a lot better at submitting. Um, but again, because I wasn't blood family there, I felt like maybe I didn't have to. And um I would have done things differently if I could go back in time to do that. But at the same time, we had, you know, a good time going through it and, and they loved me and I love them. Yeah. I was just a, you, you mentioned like, Hey, this, this, this kid comes and says, Hey, my mom's a drug addict, man. I was so different from them. They were a middle-class white family. I'm, I'm, I'm native American. So I'm brown or I'm not, you know, it's not apparent that I'm a super minority or anything like that, but socioeconomically, I was a completely different person hmm. than they were. I mean, I was coming from some pretty rough um, ghetto areas and I talked very ghetto and my mannerisms were very ghetto and how I, even how I bathed myself infrequently was very different than the way this family hmm. had established its household. And I had to come into this household and did my best to integrate into their ways. But, you know, you can... Well, I don't know what it is. You you can take uh you can take a kid out of the hood, but you can't take the hood out of the kid sometimes. And even you and I, we've we've when we've gone out and had some conversations, every once in a while, revert back into a certain dialect and stuff like that. It's it's very interesting. Hmm. But I don't. I bring I brought all those stories up because I'm not your typical person that had a biological father and a biological mother that raised me. I was truly raised by a village. I was raised by a number of different people. And by the time I got to my teenage years, um, it was the entire, you know, families and specifically one in a church that was raising me. Um, and not only that, um, just, this is going to sound really silly, but watching movies, watching TV and seeing how those fathers were to their children, um, taught me things. Even watching, like I used to watch trash shows, you know, funny sitcoms, uh, you know, like, um, you know, Al Bundy and, yeah. you know, the Homer Simpson, these guys were my father figures, which is really silly, but you can also learn from bad fathers just as well. And I, 
by learning all these different things and having all these different father figures, it kind of shaped me into this really big patchwork quilt of a human being. And I think what that has translated into in my adult years now, as I sit here in front of you, is somebody who can uh, empathize, have grace, and really forgive and understand people almost no matter where they're coming from. Because there's almost nothing I haven't seen. How is, how is all this kind of, you know, as we, as we wrap this up, how has all this shaped how you've been a father? Because you became a father at around 30 years old. Yeah. 29. 29. Yep. So how have those things helped shape your way of life as a father? Well, I mean, most of it's unconscious. You know, I don't, it's but hard let me, to Let back. me ask it like this is because you kind of said you, you've had a lot of different areas that have shaped you in your view of fatherhood. How are you not a deadbeat dad? Why do you care about fatherhood? Yeah. You know, and I think that's the thing, like if we could bottle up, I mean, clearly not all dads are engaged with their kids. Not all dads are out golfing with their kids or a daddy daughter dances with their kids. You know, these are just a couple things I've seen you do in the mm-hmm. last few months. Or at a wedding with your kid and dancing and having fun. Yeah. Um, you are in tune and engaged with your kids. And what is the thing that makes you want to do that? Because so many of us take our life and we could go, my life was so easy. My dad could pay for anything. And so I'm entitled and I'm a jerk now. Yeah. Or I didn't have a dad and I didn't have a mom around and that's my, I'm a victim and I, you know, so either way you could have a great childhood or a crappy one and you turn out to be a great father or not a great father. Right. So what's the thing that you bottle up to make decision? How do you make the decision to be that dude? Yeah, it's a choice. That's what it comes down to and you have to choose it. What's the motivation behind the choice? So obviously it's easy for you and I to say it's a choice because we've chosen correctly, if mm -hmm, you will. mm -hmm. For me, the motivation uh, is is time travel, looking into the future, um, sitting here where I'm at now, and letting my entire past inform me and advise me up to this point, and then looking through a lens into the future and what that's going to be like. So I told you, Bugs told me he's raising adults, he's not raising children. Mm. I take that same mantra into my own family with my kids and think, all right, I want to raise these human beings to be great adults and therefore it allows me to begin to imagine what they would be like as adults what's my son going to be like as an adult what's my daughter going to be like as as an adult and then what's my relationship going to be with like with them as an adult so i do things with my son i do things with my daughter with the future in mind on our adult relationships with each other i golf with my son a lot it's something that we share that's incredible. There's other things too. Um, we play sports and, and things like that, but the dancing with my daughter, the other thing I do with my daughter a lot is, um, we hike. Um, I've struggled to find things that I have in common with my daughter for, for a number of reasons, but we've really fallen into dancing and hiking. And I'm lucky to even just realize that I have two things in common with my daughter. And there's, there's many more, but those are really two giant highlights. And so I consciously try to calendar those in and say, all right, I've got this calendar. I'm trying to create a space. Um, in fact, this last week, um, I texted my wife at one point. And I said, hey, here are eight or nine things I want to accomplish. And on that list was um, golfing with my son and going on a hike with my daughter. 
And um, in fact, we went on a hike, my daughter and I, just a couple of days ago, right around the corner here from your house. And it was phenomenal um, from the beginning to end because I told her the night before. And so she looked forward to it. We packed a lunch. Uh, just packing a lunch before we even get into the car to go to the trailhead is part of the experience. And, you know, she started asking me about, like, well, last time we hiked, you know, we stopped here. We're going to stop there, you know. And so it just starts, it begins this dialogue. And so then I think about the future. I'm like, okay, well, my daughter, she's 11 now. What about when she's 21 or 31 or 41? And I'm, you know, much older than that can we still do this? Am I still going to go on hikes with my daughter when she's 21, when she's 31 and so on? And maybe even her children. I hope the answer's a resounding yes. Am I still going to golf with my son when I'm 85 and he's 55? You know, I hope so. Um, or all along the way, we've been doing those things and building that relationship that even if I can't swing a golf club or get up and down to go for a hike at a certain age, we have spent decades doing those things and getting to know each other, um, doing something. So for me, it's just thinking about the future and my kids as an adult that motivate me to not be a deadbeat dad. And the rewards are just amazing and instant. So two things that I'm hearing and that I'm excited about is one, I don't want to say that it doesn't matter what your story is, but your story can be anything Mm -hmm. and you can still go and be a loving, engaged father. Yeah. It's not that it doesn't matter what happened before. It's that it does matter and that you can take what you see from your history and you can apply it to your future and have a little bit of an understanding of, okay, if I do this, it's, this is going to happen. If I, whether it's yourself or somebody you've seen do these things, you have some wisdom now to go. I know what happens. I know what the consequences are in, 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 the good and the bad, right? If I take my daughter out, the consequences, she's excited and we had a great time together. So I guess it's the, you know, the result, not necessarily consequence, which is more negative. So one is your story as a man can be anything. It doesn't determine your future. You get to determine your future by Mm -hmm. your choices Mm -hmm. and you know enough to be able to know the right steps to take. Now it could be days and days and weeks and weeks of making right choices to see some of that results. The other thing that you said that I was like, that's really good is when you explained one, it's harder to find things in common with your daughter, Mm -hmm. which I think we all find that say you have two kids, one you might connect with more than the other one. You're not just writing that off Two, you're being intentional about it. But as you talked about it, you're not just going, okay, she likes hikes. Let's just go do this. Like, you talked about making lunch together, being present, taking time where we could just, let's just drive through and grab a sandwich on the way out. We're leaving. We go, we're going to go somewhere close. We're going to get back. I live an hour from you. Yeah. So it was an hour drive. You packed a lunch, you drove an hour, you either listened to music she liked or came up with things to talk about for an hour. You went on a hike, you engage with her. Last time you went, clearly you guys either stopped for something fun or something to eat or a snack or a shake or something. Cause oh, you McDonald's, s- baby. Okay, McDonald's, because <laughs> she said, are we going to stop here again? Yeah. Right? So it's also that as she looks back, it's like, oh, when I'd go on a hike with my dad, we'd stop for an ice cream after mm-hmm. or whatever. You're creating this thing. So, dude, that's so good because it's possible. Yeah. And you sound like you enjoyed it. Yeah. Well, and this whole dancing thing is actually kind of new. The hiking thing we've been working on for years, but this dancing thing, 
one, I, you know, I don't drink anymore. I haven't drank for almost seven years. So anybody who doesn't drink understands that it can be a little bit more difficult to get out on the dance floor. Um, the, the inhibitions are, are, are there with one or two drinks of alcohol. The inhibitions go away. Right. So it's actually a little harder for me to get on the dance floor, but my daughter's so brave. She, she struggles with, with, with many things, but then when music starts, she jumps out on this dance floor. Uh, it sounds cliche to say it, but she literally is out there like like nobody else is around. Because you guys went to a wedding recently, the two of you, mm-hmm. right? Yep. And so she's out there dancing. And what's cool, I mean, you say you go out there to dance with her. I know you're going to say something, but as a parent, sometimes I think that we might put our own fears on our kids. And so if we're sitting there going like, no, sorry, I can't go out there, then it's going to put this fear in our own kid. Like, oh, am I supposed to be embarrassed by this or should I not do this? And so to let go and see what's happening through the eye of your kid versus the eye of Uncle Jerry, who is probably going to be snickering with his wife because we look like idiots, which (laughs) you probably really won't be. He'll probably be jealous if he's not out there. Exactly. Everybody's jealous of you having the courage of being out on the dance floor, not the opposite. For sure. It's those stories we tell ourselves. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, that's really cool. Well, that's, that's the case of allowing your child to teach you. Sometimes being a father, uh, it's all inherent in that, that relationship is allowing your child to be a child to you. So it's, it's not always a one way thing where the father, For sure. I mean, you gave a story earlier with yep. your nine year old giving wisdom to you to be in a space where you can accept that. Uh, even if it's just physically like, wow, my daughter's out there dancing. Like the world doesn't matter. Why can't I be out there? Right. And then physically following through with it is a whole nother trial as well. But so just being open to learning from your children is, is pretty amazing too. And my kids have, uh, taught me more about being a father than all of my father figures have combined. It's good to be aware of that we can learn from our kids and let them know that we're learning from them. Mm-hmm. I think is huge. Yeah, they're they're little adults, man. Yeah. We, we, if we, if we want to launch them into the future of becoming adults and being fathers and mothers themselves, then we've got to allow certain parts of that to kind of bubble up, even as children. You mm. know, little bits of it. Man, so good. Brad, this is so good. I always enjoy my conversations with you. It's always just so easy and so rich. And I feel like I grow and learn and just vibe off the conversation. I think you're a great human. I think you are an intentional, loving father. I think you are serving your family well. And like all of us, rebelling every day, getting up and doing it again, Mm. right? Yeah, thanks, man. Um, So keep doing what you're doing, man. And uh, thank you for sharing the story, your story. Um, with your family and how that has shaped you. And I mean, there's so many nuggets from what you shared with us about who we are and who we're becoming and, and how we can grow from this. So thank you for sharing your life with us. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll continue to do it, whether there's a podcast or a microphone in front of me or not. I hope everyone else does too, man. Let's just be out there and be vulnerable with each other. And that's, that's the only way a real relationship is going to happen. Otherwise our avatars are going to have relationships with each other right these people that that represent us on the internet Mm. um are going to be the ones having relationships with each other and that's no good Mm. so so good man thank you you bet Wow, I just so enjoy talking to Brad because he's just such a smart guy and I love the way that he sees the world and really the word rebel, he even lit on fire more for me. What a great conversation around fatherhood and just that ending too, talking about being intentional with your kids, super incredible. I want to say thank you to all you dads out there listening to Rebel and Creates Fatherhood Field Notes podcast. What you do matters. Don't be like everybody else. Be yourself. That is who your kids, spouse, and community needs. 
This is your guide, Ned Shout. Together, let's rebel against the view that fatherhood has little impact and create lives engaged in the craft of fatherhood. Thank you, and make sure to share this, like it, write a review, go on Instagram or Facebook, follow us, and engage in helping spread the word that fatherhood matters. Thank you.